Three out of the four gospel accounts record the story of Jesus in a boat, in a storm with his disciples. Previous to that event, Jesus had been preaching and teaching and healing and casting out demons. Jesus was hard about his Father's work. But as is often the case with Jesus, the time came for him, in the midst of the height of his ministry, to move on to yet another town. And so he tells his disciples, all twelve of them, hey, we're going to get in a boat together, go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, I've got people over there I need to talk with. The boat gets underway, and Jesus is so exhausted, he finds a place, curls up, and falls asleep. He's resting. Now as the story goes, of course, a storm picks up, rages on the sea, tosses this little boat to and fro, and the scriptures describe the disciples' reaction to the storm as utterly terrified, literally shaking. And we know uh, that some of these disciples, at least, were professional fishermen. They're freaked out by the storm. Eventually, they wake Jesus up and say, Aren't you going to do something? We're going to die. Don't you even care about us? Let's pause for a moment. Jesus is asleep during the storm. He wakes up. How is it that Jesus is not terrified? How is it that Jesus is able to sleep and rest during the storm in the first place? How is it that when Jesus does awake, he doesn't marvel at the height of the waves or the power of the wind. He marvels at the lack of faith of his disciples. I mean, wouldn't any normal person be terrified by a storm like that? How is it that Jesus is able to be at peace, non-anxious, unhurried, and unworried in the face of mortal danger? So think that Jesus wasn't merely asleep on the boat. He was at rest. He was full of peace because of God. Because he knew who he was before God and whose he was before God. He knew that he belonged to the Father and that he was about the Father's work. The Father told him to go across the sea to preach to these other people. And he knew he was either going to make it because the Father told him to do it, or he wasn't and that would be his time. And Jesus was just at rest about that situation. I marvel at Jesus' restfulness. I marvel at His ability to be at peace while facing danger and stress. And when I hear that story, it makes me want so badly, deep down, not externally, but deep down to be that at rest. How about you? Wouldn't you love to just have that peace inside you all the time? This evening we are going to hear the good news. The good news of rest, genuine rest, in a restless world. I want to encourage you to stand with me as we read the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son wills to reveal Him. 
Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Lord Jesus, we hear these words and want what is behind them. We want rest. We want to be able to say, yes, we're abiding in you. And yet we confess there are fibers in our being that resist putting on your yoke, that resist trusting you Probably because we've never met someone 100% trustworthy before. Holy Spirit, I pray for the miracle of faith as we encounter Jesus in this text today. I pray that you would help us to be open to receiving, to coming to Jesus. Help us to receive true rest. Amen. You may be seated. So, leading up to this passage this evening, the world, uh, for the most part, has been resisting the work of God through Jesus. John the Baptist, the great prophet who God sent to prepare the way for Jesus, had just been executed and Jesus was teaching his disciples about John. Jesus then goes to some cities where he had performed miracle after miracle, preached in person to people, raised people from the dead cast out demons right in front of crowds, and these people had still rejected Jesus. And he says, Woe to you! Woe to those whom Jesus clearly reveals himself and yet refuse to believe. That's kind of the setup for tonight's passage. Jesus praises the Father for his unusual way of revealing himself to the world. You know, this is a generalization, but in Greek and Roman philosophy... The good life was only available to those who were educated enough, were born into the right family, or had the right stuff inherently within them. These types of people refused Jesus' simple invitation to follow. But the Father's way is to reveal Himself only through the Son. Let me say that again. The Father chooses to reveal Himself exclusively through Jesus. So, here's the problem. If you're too good for Jesus, too sophisticated for Jesus, too busy for Jesus, too prideful for Jesus, you can't, you can't come and see the Father. But at the same time, for the simple ones who the world has maybe written off as insignificant, for those who come to Jesus in humility... For those who Jesus wishes to reveal Himself, these are the ones who will come to know the Father firsthand. Many of you are those ones whom the Father has revealed Himself firsthand through Jesus. They're the ones who will find rest in a restless world through Jesus. This past winter, I was feeling overextended, a little burnt out, And I think a lot of us feel overextended and a little burnt out a lot of the time, don't we? Ebbs and flows, ebbs and flows. 
Anyway, that winter, this last winter, I learned that a mentor of mine and a former Regent College teacher, Daryl Johnson, was offering a one-day retreat um, on kind of refreshment and weary, on weariness. And at that retreat, Daryl reflects heavily on this passage we're looking at tonight, Matthew 11, 25-30. And so I wanted to pass along some of what I have learned from that time, and it's carried me through into this season now. And I hope that you find it as good news as I have been finding it good news. So the first thing I want to point out, as Jesus says, come. That's the first thing he says is come. It's one of Jesus' favorite commands. He says it over and over again in plenty of different contexts, of plenty of different types of people. Simply come. Come follow me. Not come and find out how to get up to heaven so you can be with me. That's not the kind of God we have. We have a God who became flesh and came to us, dwelt among us, right? Not get your act together, stop sinning, and then you'll be good enough to be in my presence. Just come. Come as you are. Come broken, come desperate. In fact, the more you actually realize your brokenness and desperateness, the more open you are to me. So just come. By the way, is it the same Jesus who said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The second thing is not merely come, but notice to where or to whom we're to come. Not necessarily to a church, not first and foremost. Jesus doesn't say, come to church and you will find rest. Not to an organization. He doesn't say, come to the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or the Independent Party or the Socialist Party. He doesn't say, come to a political group. He doesn't say, come to a sacred shrine. If you pilgrimage to this place, you'll have rest. He doesn't say, come to a distant world, an otherworldly existence. He doesn't say, come to a spiritual state, no nirvana at this point, no, not a state of mind, no, not to a philosophy or religion. Jesus does not tell us to go anywhere. He says, come to me. Come to me. He's the one we come to. He calls us to himself. Okay? Come to me. Who is he talking about? Who is he talking about? Come to me all. Right? I mean, because I always ask the question, well, surely he's talking about someone else. I mean, what if he doesn't want me to come to him? What if I'm not up to it? What if he's talking to everyone else but me? Jesus says, come to me all who are weary, heavy laden, or burdened down. Far from being exclusive to the elite or the select group of qualified applicants, Jesus calls us who are beaten down, worn thin, over-exhausted, come to me. Come to me. And I see at least three modes of weariness. You know, this could probably be about 20 sermons, so let me just go a few modes of weariness here. Uh, of, of the type of weariness Jesus might be talking about here. I, I think first and foremost, come to me, all you who are weary of trying to please God. Come to me, all you who are burdened by the crushing weight of, of a religious system. And it can come in so many ways, shapes, and forms. Uh, I could spend hours talking about other religious systems. We could talk about how those other religions try and burden people and make them uh, try and do things to get close to God. But hey, let's look in the mirror tonight and just look at our religion, right? Christianity. The church is all too easily uh, susceptible to piling on rules and burdens on people's shoulders, which really, really makes it difficult. For people to come to Jesus. 
The early church fought this battle with the first generation of Christians. As the church spread out from the Jewish center of Jerusalem into the Gentile territories, Gentiles, non-Jewish people, started coming to faith in Jesus. Paul and Barnabas come back to Jerusalem and they report this wonderful thing going on that these Gentiles have received the Holy Spirit. God is with them. And some of the conservative party in, in the early Christian church in Jerusalem said, no, no, no. In order to come to Jesus, they must first become Jewish. They need to be circumcised. They need to follow the law of Moses first. Then they can come to Jesus. Acts 15.10 records the counter-argument. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we're saved through grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus, in the same way as they also are. Have you been crushed by the burden of unhealthy Christian leadership? Come to Jesus. Now, that may not be your story. You may be on the other side of the spectrum to where you put the burdens on yourself. You know, we might look at the, Jesus, uh, the teachings of Jesus and say, these are awesome teachings. I am going to receive those teachings and try and live them out. Thank you very much, Jesus, for coming and giving us the Sermon on the Mount and other like texts. And I've got it from here. Peace out. How's that working for you? Pretty frustrating when we try and just live that life of Jesus all in our own strength. To you who are burdened, beat up by your own impossible standards, by trying to go it alone without the power of Jesus, come to me, he says. Come to Jesus. So if the first way of being crushed and weary is the religious system or trying to measure up to God, the second way we can be weary and heavy laden is by the crushing demands placed upon you. The ones you didn't ask for. The ones you didn't sign up for. This type of burden imposes itself on you. It's it's the burden of the slave. It's the burden of the immigrant who's working more than full-time and getting paid less than uh, half-time's wages with no representation. It's the community under siege by rebel forces who don't know uh, if they're safe today or tomorrow or the next day. It's those of you who feel stuck in your own work environment where the culture of your office or your space or your faculty is so life-draining and soul-sucking you dread being around that space. Come to me. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, those of you who have burdens placed on you that you didn't sign up for. Come to me, those of you who have news of cancer, or the loss of a close friend, or you're parenting a wayward child, or you've lost a job unexpectedly. Come to me, those of you who are crushed by abuse of authorities and collateral damage of a fallen world. Come. Come to Jesus. The third way I think we can become weary and heavy laden is by the daily nagging sense that life itself is moving on without you. Time erodes your soul and you're left wondering if 
anything you're doing is worthwhile in the grand scheme of things? Is any of this worth anything? What are we toiling for? There's a famous clock in Cambridge that intrigued Corey and I when we were there last summer on sabbatical. Its official name is the Corpus Clock. Joe's going to put it up on the, slide, on the thing right there. Isn't that an interesting clock? Has anyone seen this clock firsthand? Yeah, it's, it's called the Corpus Clock and it's located at Corpus Christi College of Cambridge University. It's created by John Taylor. John Taylor is a graduate of Corpus Christi College, and uh, one of his big inventions is the electric tea kettle that many of you, if you've lived in a dorm room or something, have probably used over and over again. Well, that's his claim to fame. He got rich off of that, but he's also an inventor, created so many other things. The Corpus Clock was one of his creations. cost a million pounds. I think that's probably 1.5 million U.S. dollars. Uh, It's obviously stunning to look at. That is true 24 karat uh, gold uh, over stainless steel plate. But while it does catch the eye, uh, as Corey and I learn more about this clock, uh, it's actually quite a depressing piece. Uh, Its nickname is chronophage, which comes from two Greek words, chronos for time, and phage, which means literally, I eat. Uh, It's time eater. And you notice the locust on top uh, with this horrendous, monstrous face. Uh, At certain times, that locust will actually move, and it's as if it is eating time. Now, to make this clock even more disturbing, it only tells the correct time once every five minutes. And in between those times, uh, it has these LED lights, the center ring tells the hour, the middle ring tells the minutes, and the outer ring tells the seconds. But it goes too fast sometimes, and it goes too slow sometimes. And Taylor's intent with making this clock is to show that that's kind of like human life. Sometimes you're in a stage of life where time just feels like it's dragging on, you're suffering. And sometimes it feels like time is just running away from you and you don't know where the years have gone. You look and you're, you're a completely different person than you were last year. Your kid changes. It's like, when did you become a little person? You know, and it's just amazing. And, and it's kind of trying to represent that idea that when a minute is lost, it's lost. And it causes an anxiety about us. I think that's the thanks, Joe. I think that's the anxiety of our age and culture. We're chronically restless and overextended. And so, what does this life mean? I know we'll work longer hours, and we will make our own meaning. Or we get involved in too many activities because we're afraid we're going to miss out on something. And if you're a parent, you know how this works. You can pass on that anxiety to our children, putting them in so many activities that you don't even know if they're enjoying them, and you just end up being a glorified chauffeur who is a slave to the drop-offs and the pickups and the in-betweens. And singles, you know as well as I do, it's not any easier on you. It's not like it's harder for people with kids because there are always more pressures, always more things to do, more hills to climb, more shifts to take at work. There's always more. And what's interesting about this part of the passage is that the word weary, come to me all you who are weary, it's in the active voice. And those of you who are burdened or heavy laden, it's in the passive voice. And the way these two work together, sometimes uh, grammarians will say it's almost as if the total package is in the middle voice, which would have this kind of thrust. Come to me, all you who have burdened yourselves. Ah, I can relate to that. 
Come to me, all you who have bitten off more than you can chew. Come to me, all you who have got on the treadmill and have got it going so fast, you're terrified to get off. You might slam into the wall behind you. Come to Jesus. Those who are weary and burned out on religion. Come, all you who are weary and burdened by life in a fallen world. Come, all you who have overburdened yourselves. Why? Because Jesus says, I will give you rest. (laughs) Wait a minute, Jesus. I just was expressing the fact that I feel like a train going too fast around a sharp curve. I'm about ready to come off the tracks in my life. And you're taking, you're telling me you're going to give me rest? What is that, a catnap, a siesta, a vacation, that then I have to come back to the grind? What are you talking about? Of course, rest... And the Bible means more than just taking a nap or going on vacation. Throughout the scriptures, rest is a theological term. It's a reality stemming deep from within the story of God. The story of Israel. Rest is a term that is synonymous with salvation. It's the multifaceted uh, concept of shalom. Rest means living at peace with God and living at peace with your neighbors. Rest is a way of being where you know who you are and you know who you aren't. And you're okay with that. Wouldn't that be great? To feel comfortable in your own skin in any situation in life. And why would you be comfortable? Why would you have rest? Because you realize, I am the Father's child. Rest is the fullness of the kingdom of God. And Jesus offers that rest in Himself. Rest is forgiveness of sin accomplished by the death of Jesus. And rest is new life made possible by the resurrection of Jesus. In most of our English translations, it says, Come to me and I will give you rest. But... That's actually not accurate uh, from the Greek text. In the Greek text, there is no word for give. If I say to you, I I will give you rest, that sounds or implies that I could give you this thing called rest. You could say, thank you for the rest. I will go my own way. Say la vie. That's not what Jesus is communicating here. Jesus is saying, I will rest you. I will rest you. There's no word forgive here. This is not something you just get one time from Jesus and then say, I've got it from here. This is about Jesus offering to give you rest over and over and over and over again. Are you letting Jesus rest you? Are you letting Him make you lie down in green pastures? And lead you beside quiet waters? Are you letting Jesus restore your soul on a regular basis? How do we, how do we come to Jesus? I don't, I don't see Him. How do we come to Him and, and experience this resting that He does for us? Well, He says we take His yoke upon Him. I know, right? We've just established the fact that many of us are uh, borderline uh, overextended a lot of the time. Uh, The last thing we need is a yoke on us, a a wooden instrument that harnesses the power of a beast of burden. Thank you, Jesus. That really sounds what I need, right? Uh, I'd rather have a vacation, thank you very much. 
Not so fast. Of course, the word yoke in biblical imagery is a metaphor, and especially in first century Judaism. It was how the rabbis used to refer to the Torah or the law. Now, are you ready for something really cool? Uh, listen to what one Jewish scholar says about Torah. Torah is all that God had made known about his nature and his character and purpose. It's what he reveals of what he would have man be and do. It's the full revelation of God. So the rabbis used to teach Torah, and their interpretation of Torah would be their yoke. Come follow me, I'll teach you Torah, because Torah, uh, the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses, that's how God's revealed himself in his entirety. It's all you need to know about life. Come, I'll, I'll put my yoke on you. Now, all sages and Pharisees and rabbis taught Torah, yet their yoke of instruction was Torah. But Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, and I will give you rest. Learn from me. Jesus is saying, I am the full revelation of God. I'm not just going to teach you about the Bible. Come follow me. I am the giver of life. I am the revelation of God. Isn't that amazing? It's all about this relationship with Jesus. It's not about learning about information. Did you know that an untrained oxen, a young juvenile oxen, if you yoke that thing up to, um, to a piece, an apparatus for, uh, what do you call that, a till, a till, thank you, a plow, yeah, it will run itself almost to death. It will destroy everything. It will not go in a straight line. And so the way that they would train these beasts of burden is by yoking them to an older, more experienced oxen, so that the young juvenile will not go too fast, or too slow, or too crooked. Jesus is offering us to take on His yoke. And in one sense, that doesn't sound like much of an offer. But if you're weary, you want a vacation and not a yoke. You want a nap, not more work. Of course, vacations and naps and Sabbath rest, that's all part of good, God's good creation. But in the end, vacations and escapes are temporary, and we all are under some yoke, some teaching, some master. So what Jesus is offering us is for life, to walk with us. The creator of life is offering to mentor us at life. I think he probably gets what life is about. Like the wise older ox, he's going to keep us from living, uh, leaving a wake of destruction in our path. He's going to lead us to living meaningful lives. How do we know we can trust Jesus? I think, don't, if you've been following Jesus for a while, you've been part of the church for a while, don't gloss over this one. Because I think foundationally in our hearts, trust is a big issue. How do we know we can trust what he actually says is the, is the best way to go? The first reason is because Jesus is humble and gentle. He says, I'm gentle and I'm humble in heart. He's not an oppressive overlord. He is the Lord, and if you don't believe him just because he says it, he is the Lord who gives up his life willingly so that you and I can have life. He's not going to chastise us out of anger and frustration. He's not going to belittle you. He's approachable. And he's gentle. 
But let's, let's just face the facts. Um, if that was all Jesus was, is gentle and humble, it's not still a good reason to follow him. Um, if I am deathly ill or I need some major surgery, I don't care how nice my doctor is. She could be the nicest surgeon in the world. If she can't do the job, I'm not going to the nice one, right? Bedside manner is overrated when you're knocked out anyway. You want the competent person. So Jesus has the character. He's gentle and humble in heart, but he also has the competence. You don't have to worry about competence with Jesus. We can trust him and put on his yoke because we realize from Scripture that Jesus' yoke is in essence his own trust and love shared with the Father. Jesus' life revolves around pleasing the Father. How do we know Jesus can give us rest? Because he exhibited it over and over again. Jesus lived for an audience of one. Every day, imagine the crushing needs around him. There's always one more sick child to heal. Always one more demon to cast out. Almost one, one more Pharisee to, uh, to confront. One more lost person to say, come follow me. There's always one more. But Jesus never let the needs of the crushing crowds dictate his agenda. He served hard, and then when the Father told him to move on, I obey the Father. How many of us could have that kind of awareness? Most of us are so anxious to please everyone. Jesus did not have the need to be liked by everyone because his only goal was to please the Father. Jesus didn't care if the important people thought he was important. He didn't go out of his way to get the Pharisees and the priests and the politicians to like him. I mean, they ended up killing him. He didn't need their validation. The Father was well pleased with him and he didn't need anything else but that. Jesus is not driven by the anxious need for affirmation or for success. He's not even driven by the needs to please his acquaintances and disciples, even his own mother, when those came into conflict with the will of the Father. Wouldn't you like to live that freely, that free of anxiety? Come to Jesus. He will lead you. Allow Him to guide you in the Father's love. Allow Him to open your eyes to what's truly important in life. Allow Him to give you grace to pursue those things. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this word. Lord, we can all relate to the fact that we um, are in over our heads so often. The way we've been doing it, life. Cannot be the ultimate answer. But we often feel like if we, things keep going the way they are, we don't know how much longer we can make it. And yet, Lord, we confess the changing direction now, after all this time, after we've done it a certain way for so long, seems like more trouble than it's worth. 
I think of your comment to the man who had been crippled by the pool for all those years and you looked at him and said, do you wish to get well? Holy Spirit, soften us. Help us to have courage enough to wish to get well. Show us what it means to come to Jesus, each in our own circumstance, and our own burdens that we carry, and our own forms of weariness and heavy laden. Help us to come to you, Jesus. Help us to trust you. Help us to receive your rest. Amen.